if you are new to this class or watching it perhaps uh, for the first time or uh, something on that line, what we're doing is going through the Bible in a contextual fashion. And so the sermons are being preached out of John, Acts, and Revelation. And the support texts are coming through in the life group classes and in this one. And so what I've done this week is covered what you would have read last week. You've got a handout for it, along with a handout for next week for you a uh, few who, who want to read ahead. And so let's just dig right in. We started with Peter's sermon at Pentecost fits and dovetails with where Pastor David ended the sermon this morning. Jesus had said to his disciples, to, to, to his apostles, you stay here, you wait. And while you wait, when the Spirit comes upon you, you'll know when the time is right. And so the apostles stayed. They did decide to pick up someone to take uh, uh, the place of Judas and the, the uh, 12th apostle. And so they did so. And then Pentecost comes. Pentecost comes from the Greek word for 50. Penta. 50. It's 50 days after Passover. It was a celebration, a Jewish celebration. And we weren't here last week to read about it, but it would have been in the handout last week uh, uh, had you been here for that, uh, but with Mother's Day, we didn't have class. So you can grab that handout over the internet and and read about Pentecost in more detail than we have time to cover today. But the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles at Pentecost, and the apostles were speaking, and, and Scripture says they were speaking in tongues, and the tongues were not a, a, a babbling an incomprehensible babbling. What people were hearing were the apostles speaking in the the hearer's own language. So the people who spoke Latin heard it as if the apostles were speaking Latin. The, the hearers who heard Greek, who spoke Greek, heard it as Greek. Who spoke Aramaic, heard it as Aramaic. Who spoke Egyptian, heard it as Egyptian. And, and, and the reaction of the, the listeners was that something was going on. Something bizarre was going on. And, and, and we have a tendency to read that and think something bizarre was going on because the listeners were hearing it in different languages. But that's not really what the text indicates. The listeners thought the apostles were drunk. The apostles said, we're not drunk. It's too early in the day to be drunk. Now, some of you have friends who have no regard for the clock when it comes to how early you can get drunk. But they had regard for the clock. They said, it's too early. Luke doesn't tell us directly, but the inference is there. The people thought the apostles were drunk, not because the apostles were able to speak in different languages. Not because the apostles were babbling some incomprehensible language. The reason the people thought the apostles were drunk is not how the apostles were speaking, but what 
the apostles were saying. The apostles were saying, Jesus, whom you crucified, was raised physically from the dead. We all witnessed it. For 40 days, he ate fish with us. Jesus, now you start talking with conviction about some guy who's raised from the dead. It's one thing if, if he was out for a minute or two and someone was able to bring him back to life by pounding on his chest or breathing in his lungs. But dead for three days? That doesn't happen on its own by anything human. And so when the apostles are declaring this, the reaction of the people is one of, you guys are tanked. You're drunk. If you really believe this, you have had one too many. And I suspect the apostles were not only saying the message, but were saying it with great excitement and fervor and energy. Because they had been waiting, as Pastor David indicated they'd been instructed to do. They'd been waiting and finally the Holy Spirit came upon them and came upon them in power. And they must have been giddy with what they were saying. So now you've got this message being proclaimed in this energetic, excited, enthusiastic fashion. And the initial reaction is, these guys are tanked. And Peter says, no, we're not tanked. It's too early in the day. Here's what's going on. And Peter lays out the gospel sermon and he starts by quoting the book of Joel, the Old Testament book of Joel. If we look on the Elmo for just a moment. Thank you, Ricky Ship, for bringing a printed text. He said I could write in it. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said, Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, listen, these people aren't drunk. It's nine in the morning, third hour of the day. The day started 6 a.m. It's nine in the morning. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel where Joel says, in the last days, whoops, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on flesh. Your sons, your daughters, they'll prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I'm going to pour it out and it'll come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he starts laying it out there. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works. The guy that y'all were following. He was the son of God. And you killed him. And it's one thing to kill him and be done with him, but you killed him and aren't done with him. He came back from the dead because he's God. All right. 
Now, take off your Christian history for the last 2,000 years for just a moment and be a normal human being. Be a normal human being and take this message to heart. You tried to kill God. It didn't work. He came back. Guess who he's ticked off with? What are you going to do to him now? And the Holy Spirit was not simply working in the apostles. The Holy Spirit was working in the midst of the people. And the people realized what they had done. And the conviction was overwhelming. I want to put a couple of scriptures up here. Before Jesus went away to the cross, before his, his arrest, Jesus had in John 14, 15, and 16 a closing dialogue with his apostles. Now his apostles really are clueless as to what Jesus is saying. You can read that very carefully and see that they're pretty clueless. They don't have the Holy Spirit within them. But Jesus says that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to send the helper, the paraclete. He's going to send the helper to his apostles. And, and Jesus said when he comes, he's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now look at what happens when the Holy Spirit came. Acts 2. When the people, and these are people from all around the world. Luke's already said that. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? See, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would convict the world concerning sin. And they were convicted concerning their sin. The Holy Spirit did exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do on the day it came. He came. And so within the framework of that, the people were asking this question. What do we do with our sin? What do we do? We've, we've violated, I mean, it's one thing to say, God tells me, uh, uh, not to uh, uh, lie. And I told a little fib. God tells me not to be selfish. And I had a pity party. That's one thing. But to say, God told me to love my neighbor and I killed God over it. That's a pretty, I mean, if you're going to rank them, which we're not really supposed to do, that one's going to rank up at the top. I killed God. The angels are rejoicing when Jesus is God incarnate. All of the Christmas nativity, and I put an end to it. So the people, what are we going to do with this sin? Now Peter's response is for the people to repent. He tells them to be baptized, to, to be born again. 
to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. To accept it. That's what he tells them to do. Did Peter just come up with this? Or is there an Old Testament context where Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, taught by Jesus, knew what to say? I think it's all three of those. I think Peter had Old Testament teaching. He had been taught by Jesus. And clearly, the Holy Spirit was directing his words. And so for Old Testament context, we put a couple of things in here. We put Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is a, is a marvelous psalm. Look at Psalm 90 for a moment. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. It's not just this week, this month, this year, my life. Before the mountains were brought forth, before you formed the earth and the world, you were God. You're everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, you're God. Man, we return to dust. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday or just a six-hour time period at night when you're on watch duty. That's a thousand years. And that's not to be taken literally. It's poetic. We're not supposed to sit here and say, okay, so Jesus died 2,000 years ago. It's been two nights for God. Okay? No. The point of this is when you go to sleep at night, and you wake up the next morning, generally, you feel like you just went to sleep. Now, as we get older, we might wake up two or three times in the night. But each time we wake up, we feel like we just went to sleep. That time passed. Like that. And that's the picture. A thousand years for God. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's outside of time. It's just poof. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream. Like grass renewed in the morning. Look at the psalmist in verse 7. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we're dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. We have sin, God. Here you are, a God from everlasting to everlasting. A God who the day, the thousand years is just like that time when you're asleep. But you see our sin. You see our secret sin. You know what's going on within us. What are we going to do? How do we handle your anger? How do we handle your wrath? Our days, verse 9... Our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. We live 70. If, if things are really strong, we live 80 years. But it's just toil and trouble. Then they're gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us 
to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us. As many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Establish the work of our hands. When you sin before God, is the response one of just ignoring God? No. Is the response one of just trying to sort through the consequences of his anger? No. Is the response one of ignoring the sin and pretending it didn't happen? No. The response is one of turning to the steadfast love of the Lord which never ceases. With honesty, with true moral guilt. God, I truly have sinned before you. I need your mercy and I need your love. Because it's nothing that I deserve, but that favor, Lord, can come from your steadfast love nonetheless. So that's where we started. So we started with Psalm 90, and the idea is turn to God. Then we added Isaiah 40 with the idea being God actually will comfort you in your sin as well as forgive you. Now that's an interesting idea, comforting you in your sin. Comfort? Yes. Why comfort? Because sin brings affliction. Oh, it may not at the moment. At the moment, it may actually seem pretty fun, pretty cool, or a lifesaver. But sin brings affliction just as assuredly as putting your hand in the fire brings a burn. It does. It's the reason God tells us not to do it. He doesn't tell us not to do it because he's just out to ruin your life. I'm going to save them, but I want them miserable. I'm going to save them, but they can't have fun. I would love for this new book idea to talk to Billy Joel. His line, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than die with the saints. The sinners have much more fun. Well, I've read about his life. I think I'm having more fun than he is. I can't help but wonder if that's really what he's thinking. Maybe he hadn't read the right right followers of Jesus. Because sin brings affliction. So look at Isaiah 40. I love this. This is one of my favorite Old Testament passages. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. God is telling Isaiah to bring comfort to the people. Speak 
tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's been brutal. But look, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is, we're told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are all quoting Jesus. This is a prophecy about John the Baptist. Because the comfort for the people of Jerusalem and the world, the tender voice of God, to speak to their sins, to pardon their iniquities, is Jesus Christ. And then we have the famous passage. Famous because it's quoted, can you think of two different places? Bible trivia, history trivia. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Handel's Messiah. Martin Luther King's speech on the Washington Mall. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Kipi Adonai Diber in the Hebrew, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. God doesn't lie. God doesn't speak out of hand. God doesn't speak cavalierly. God doesn't accidentally say something. God has spoken it. The Hebrews just Gorgeous. Keep P Adonai Diver, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You saw the movie with Pharaoh? So let it be written. So let it be done. He was nothing compared to the Lord. God said it. God has spoken it. And by the way, if the mouth of the Lord has spoken, what should we be looking and listening for? The Word. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld His glory, the glory of the One begotten of the Father. This is the mouth of the Lord has spoken the Word, Jesus Christ. He prepared the way for Him with John the Baptist, and Jesus Christ came. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Your sin, your iniquity has been pardoned. This continues, and we don't have time to go through it all. But the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him. His recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. 
Jesus knew this was him. Jesus wasn't just a man blindly trying to find his place in life. Jesus knew he was the fulfillment of this magnificent prophecy. And Jesus promised that he would carry his lambs in his bosom. He would gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who's measured the spirit of the Lord that's blowing at Pentecost? Who's measured the spirit of the Lord? Who showed man his counsel? It's a magnificent passage. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, what do I do with my sin? They asked Peter, and Peter knew, and Peter had been taught, and the Old Testament taught, you turn to God, and God comforts and forgives through Jesus Christ. And then Ezekiel 17, those who repent. Now, the repentance is not earning the forgiveness of Jesus. The repentance, the turning, is what you do when you are confronted with this reality. It's, 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 it's the difference between saying, God, I'm a sinner and I'm proud of it. And I plan on sinning the rest of my life. It's the coolest thing I got. I expect you to forgive me. Because that's the promise in Jesus, I believe. So forgive me. But I'm going to give you a lot to forgive. Because I really like this life. And I'm going to embrace it. No. No, that's pretty fake. Now don't get me wrong. If you're trapped in sin and you've got something that's plaguing you. And you turn to God. And you seek His forgiveness. Am I going to tell you that He is immediately going to give you the 180 so that you turn your back and you never do that again? He might. I've seen people and known people with addiction where God's done that. Just boom. But I've also known people with addiction where God has helped them through that struggle and they fall down and they come get God's comfort and forgiveness as they repent and they try again and they try again because it's a snare, it's a trap. There is an evil being that's trying to destroy their life and make them miserable. And he's set up camp around them. And it sometimes is a process But the believer is the one who is still, even in the midst of sin, God, forgive me. It breaks my heart. I don't want to be this way. So look at Ezekiel 17 for just a moment. Do, 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 do. Now I've got uh, the Handel's Messiah going on in my brain. I mean, it's not a bad song to have. It's better than the Billy Joel song. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, propound a riddle, speak a parable to the house of Israel, 
say, thus says the Lord God. A great eagle with great wings and long feathers, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. A cedar's an evergreen tree, a pine tree. Took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs, carried it to a land of trade, and set it in a city of merchants. He took of the seed of the land, he planted it in fertile water, he placed it beside abundant waters, he set it like a willow twig. It sprouted, it became a low-spreading vine, its branches turned toward him, its roots remained where it stood, so it became a vine and produced branches and put out bows. You got the picture? Big old gorgeous eagle comes, snaps off the twig, takes it, he's planted things, he's he's planted seeds, he's got this gorgeous vine, he's got the plants growing, he's taking care of business. Verse 7. There was another great eagle. Now this is a parable, okay? We got that at the start. There was another great eagle with great wings and lots of plumage. And behold, the vine bent its roots toward him And shot forth its branches towards him from the bed, work with me here, from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, thus says the Lord God. Now, you got the parable. Will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so it withers, so its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It won't take a strong arm. It won't take many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it's planted. Will it thrive? Or will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? He's sitting there saying, okay, I'm not following this really, but I've kind of got it. Eagle, another eagle, got two things going on here. You got the plant, kind of, is it going to grow? It sounded like it was going to grow pretty good. Now it's looking like it's going to be ripped up. What's going on? I need some help, Ezekiel. Ezekiel says, okay, keep reading. Verse 11. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house. Do you know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. Start thinking, oh, beautiful eagle, great pinions, lots of feathers. And took her king and her princes, snipped off the top of the cedar tree. And brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring, the seeds, and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away. That the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. It was put in a place where it could grow and it could thrive and it could do all of these things. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt. 
that he might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can he escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and escape? Here's historically what had happened. I'm talking strictly political science for a moment. Then we'll bring in the element of faith. Political science. Babylon comes in, conquers Judah, takes the king, cuts a deal. But some of the leading men and some of the say, time out. Instead of keeping our agreement with Babylon, we're going to the other eagle. We're going to Egypt. We're going to get Pharaoh to help us break the bondage of Babylon. Okay? He rebelled by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that he might give them horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Will this new planted thing over here work? As I live, verse 16, declares the Lord God... Surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised, whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company, he's not going to help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, he despised the oath in breaking the covenant and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Now, it's just not going to work. I'm going to have to skip in the interest of time and go to the end of this chapter to help you see the final buzz. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches, produce fruit, and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. All the trees of the field shall know that I'm the Lord. I'll bring low the high tree. I'll make high the low tree. Every valley will be exalted. Every mountain brought down. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. I make the high, the low tree. Dry up the green tree. Make the dry tree flourish. I'm the Lord. I have spoken. I will do. I, this is this is the God who will minister to his people. This is the God who will come to his people. This is the God who doesn't simply turn away at sin, doesn't turn away at covenant breaking. This is the God we worship. And so Peter says, turn to this God, a God who comforts and forgives those who repent. Turn from where you were and live right before him and let him establish you. And 3,000 were added to the church that day. It was a magnificent day in church history. All right, we don't have time to get through all the days, but let's go through it a little bit more. So the next, the time period passes. We don't know exactly how many days. Acts 2 ends with the fact that the church continued in a daily breaking of bread uh, and the apostles teaching and preaching and the fellowship, Acts 2.42. And then we roll into Acts 3. 
In Acts 3, there is a lame man. And Peter and John are going to the temple to pray. And the lame man says, um, hey, can I have some money? Alms for the poor. He's a beggar by the side of the road. And when I was in a, a Sunday school as a young kid, we sang that song. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I think that is so cool. I cannot tell you how many times walking down the streets of New York City, I've seen someone whose legs have been blown off or been lost or someone who's who's clearly lame with the little cup. Help, please. And it's okay to, 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 it's, it's, it's nice to be able to say, scared as I am, here I come. Lord, take me, I'm yours. Lord Jesus, I believe. It's a whole different world. And the irony of it is, is when you accept, then by the Spirit of God, your fear is cast out. And that's the story from the Chronicles that we had. Second Chronicles 17 through 20. When Jehoshaphat accepted, the, the, the Spirit of the Lord came and removed the fear from the people. Because what is there to fear? Once you've accepted the Lord Jesus, what is there to fear? Next week, we'll start talking about Stephen, the first martyr to get stoned. And and he's not afraid. Why would he be afraid? He has the spirit of God within him. He's exactly where he needs to be. So side story for a moment. This week uh, on uh, Wednesday... Um, I was speaking at uh, a seminar of about 750 plaintiffs lawyers. Uh, it was uh, it was not safe to to be in that city at that day um, because the plaintiffs lawyers were everywhere. And and my part of this symposium was to be interviewed by a, a woman who's a lawyer and a friend of mine. Uh, she's also a PhD psychologist. And so she interviewed me in front of everybody and uh, about this case that we had just tried. And so I'm up there and, and she had been at the first day of the trial for opening statement and, and watched. And she came and watched at, I don't think she came at closing. I think it was just opening. But I didn't have a memory of it because I was kind of zoned in on what I was doing. So I didn't remember this until she asked me. But she made this statement as she started the interview. We're just sitting in these two seats in front of everybody. She said to me, Mark, on the day you were set to give opening statement, packed courtroom, media there, 100 plus people, lawyers hanging off the chandelier, 
She said, I asked you right before you started your opening statement, are you scared? Are you nervous? And she said, do you remember what you told me? I said, no, <laughs> I didn't even remember she asked me. Um, I, and I had to say, no, I, I, Lisa, I don't remember. What did I say? Hoping I had said something that seemed halfway real. And she said, um, she said, you looked at me and you said, no. And I said, how can you not be scared? And she said, your comment to me was, Lisa, right now, right here, I'm where I'm supposed to be, and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. What's there to be afraid of? Now, well, thank God he's brought me here through a lot of fear. Uh, but, but that is, that is the statement of a believer as the roots have grown and God's nurtured the plant, if, if we're where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be doing, what, what are we afraid of? Nothing. And so I really hope we can get that as we looked through that. And that was the point of that story. I'm going to skip to the points for home. You can't see the PowerPoint anyway. But as I, oh man, oh man. Okay, if you want, read the, the, the thing because it's got some good stuff in there. Ananias and Sapphira, uh, you know, they, 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 they learned the hard way. The importance of honesty and integrity. Um, uh, uh, they, they had theft instead of honesty and integrity. Okay. Um, so here are your points for home. Point for home number one. Um, raise your hand if you've never sinned. Oh man, I'm with my people. <laughs> We're all in this together. Lord, we repent. Lord, we, we turn to you and your steadfast love. I got to tell you, I've noticed as you get older, your sins generally change. But they all have that same root. That root of faithlessness. That root of selfishness. That root of immediacy. Living for the moment. Not taking time to be still and quiet and recognize the Lord. And they just, it's this undercurrent of faithlessness, selfishness that bubbles up at different points in your life in different ways. But it's still there. As Martin Luther said, the best human deed is tainted with at least a little bit of selfishness. So let's don't fool ourselves. Let's don't run from it. Let's admit it. But let's do it with repentance. Lord, please help us. Grow us out of this. Empower us through your spirit, not only to be convicted of sin, but of the righteousness in Jesus. 
so that we can live before it. And we can do this because we worship a saving and a healing God. He's not out to, to, to destroy us. He's out to remake us in his image. And so we do that and we do it together in fellowship. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you on our knees spiritually. Recognizing the greatness and wonder of who you are, of your steadfast love, your everlasting nature. Above and beyond all time and comprehension. More beautiful than we can understand or see. And we know that we present ourselves on our own marred with sin. With selfishness. And Father, I think a lot of times, at least speaking for myself, I don't even see it. But I know intellectually it's there. And then the times that I do see it, Lord, it's so, in some ways, disheartening and disgusting. But Lord, don't ever leave us there. Please let your spirit wash over us afresh and anew in the midst of our repentance. Immerse us in your spirit and the power of of forgiveness, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Transform who we are. Take away our fears, Lord, and plant us firmly with feet on on not just the gospel, but the faith that comes with being in the right place before you at the right time, doing what you'd have us to do. We thank you for the chance to share the words that you've given for us in Scripture. We pray through Jesus our Lord. Amen.